So today we come together in the scriptures to consider a very important but sometimes forgotten aspect of church life. The office of deacon and deacon ministry. The New Testament presents two distinct offices in the church, elder and deacon, that work together in their unique ways to care for the congregation. I think we typically think more about elders, but deacons are no less important. In fact, in many ways, deacons are the lifeblood of the church in many ways. Initially, today's plan was to formally appoint and commission our deacons. However, as the week progressed, the plan changed for reasons I will explain a bit later. Still, nonetheless, I anticipate really great things today as we recognize our deacons, learn about deacons, and dedicate our deacon ministry to the Lord. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to have our deacons just stand where they are so that we might just see them and acknowledge them from the start. So if our deacons would just stand, and there's no need for clapping or anything like that, just stand to be recognized. Uh, Stuart Nimi, Renee Nimi, Bill Hudson, uh, Jan Miller, Joe Miller, Bob Ross, and then, and then maybe what I'd also do is if any of you there who have previously served as deacons here at East Parkway, would you stand also, would you just stand where you are if you have previously served in this capacity? And so we have Debbie Hudson and Norm Nystrom and Mary Nystrom and then uh, Bob Easter also in the back. Um, so, um, and then of course there are, certainly there are, thank you, you can be seated. And then uh, certainly there are many, many, many more of you who have served with them over the years. And we are very, very thankful. And well, as we consider these men and women, and the reason I asked them to stand at the start is because I want us to make a very personal connection. I want us to see, see faces and names. I want us to make a very personal connection between what the Bible teaches about deacons and how deacon ministry is taking place here at East Parkway Church. God's been very good to us through these people. And in the days to come, the aim, our aim, is to further develop this ministry by affirming our current deacons and by encouraging new ones to serve with them. The title of today's message is The Duty and Disposition of the Deacon. We'll consider two passages, which we've read already. From Acts 6, The Duty of the Deacon. And from 1 Timothy 3, The Deacon's Disposition. We're going to try to cover, we're going to try to do justice to two passages in one sermon, which means it will be a tad longer than usual, but I've factored in a halftime. So if necessary, we can take a little halftime stretch. Here's the main point. God strengthens the church. Please hear this. God strengthens the church through the care and character of its deacons. 
God strengthens the church through the care and character of its deacons. Well, to better understand what deacons do, I think it's helpful to return to the origins of the office, which are commonly believed to be found here in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So verse 1 of chapter 6 begins with some very exciting news. The church was growing. And the church was growing. The witness of the church was spreading, even amidst pushback and persecution. The members of the church, we know from previous chapters in Acts, the members of the church were bold in sharing Jesus and in serving in His name. The community was being affected, wonderfully so, affected for Christ, and people were coming to faith in Christ. The church was expanding, or as it reads in verse 1, the disciples were increasing in number. It's very encouraging. Very exciting. And yet soon the church faced a very real problem. It says a complaint arose by the Hellenists, that is Greek-speaking Jews. A complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews... That is native, Palestinian, probably Aramaic-speaking Jews. Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here's what's happening. The church was reaching people. It's expanding. It's reaching people from different cultures who typically didn't interact. Different people are coming together in the church, and they're learning how to live together as a church. And they bring all their preconceptions and opinions and stuff with them. There were Greek-speaking Jews, those who, were, uh, who, who more readily assimilated into the surrounding Greek culture. And there were Aramaic-speaking Jews who maintained or tried to maintain their traditional Hebrew language and practice, and there's tension between these two groups who were now united in faith through Jesus Christ. And so the church, we can discern here, the church, were, they had made provisions for the needy, including care for the widows. However, the distribution of these provisions came into question. The Hellenists took offense because their widows were being neglected. They complained against the Hebrews, and the church was facing a very real threat, a very real threat, threat division. Division in the church, in any church, is deadly. For us... It may not be the daily distribution. It may not be provisions for the poor or care for widows. It may be things like how to prioritize our budget or how ministries are directed and developed or how decisions are made or a whole host of other issues that surface in the normal, everyday happenings of church life. It's not at all uncommon for issues to arise because we all bring our opinions to the table. It becomes a problem 
However, when our opinions lead to complaints and complaints lead to division, and here the early church is dealing with the early stages of division. Factions are forming, sides are being drawn, accusations are made, the Hellenist widows are feeling left out while the Hebrew widows are taking the lion's share, and the congregation was looking to the apostles for answers. And I want you to see how the apostles answer. Verses 2 through 4. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, that's the congregation, and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles recognized that this is an important need, but they were wise enough, it seems, to also recognize that they weren't to meet that need directly. You see that? For them to meet that need directly, to sort the details, to mediate between these two parties, to coordinate the daily distribution would have distracted them from their primary task, which was to pray and preach and teach the Bible. So they instead met this important need, very important need, they instead met it indirectly by establishing a new ministry in the church, a new office, as it were, and by appointing qualified men to lead that ministry. And this new ministry was service-oriented in that it provided uh, hands-on, physical, material care for the people. So the model here, it's just a model, the model is that of elders and deacons, and the distinction between the two is a matter of call and giftedness, a matter of role and function in the church. Both offices are important, and both are service-oriented. The apostles were to serve the people through prayer and teaching primarily, while the deacons served by helping to meet the people's material needs. Deacons are extraordinary servants. Extraordinary servants. Amen. And the word itself literally means servant or attendant or waiter. It was a common word used for those who waited on tables, and it became a very meaningful word in the church. This whole idea of service, of serving others, of being a glad and willing servant, it was countercultural, and it's at the heart of Christian faith. It's in our DNA as disciples of Christ, who himself came not to be served, but to serve. Or literally, as it reads there in Mark chapter 10, who came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. Deacons, therefore, through their service, are tremendous examples of Christ. They model Christ and they magnify Christ through their service. They are lead servants with the emphasis on serving and servant leadership. Did you know that leader 
is found just six times in the New Testament, but servant is found over 160 times. What the church needs today, what every church needs today, are people who lead the way, who set the pace in serving one another. There's not a week that goes by. Hear this. There's not a week that goes by in the life of our church that does not involve the ministry of our deacons. Not a single week, not a single week in which we aren't served incredibly well by our deacons. Our deacons help coordinate congregational care. They arrange meals for the sick or those who need extra support. At some point, along with the elders, at some point this week, I suspect our deacons will reach out to the Lindos and the Hansons. What can we do? They help with yard work and household tasks at people's homes. Sometimes they run errands. They check in on our widows regularly. Our deacons help coordinate church finances and benevolence. Our financial ministry is now a deacon-led ministry. The elders provide oversight and input, but the deacons are the boots on the ground leading the way. Our deacons help coordinate hospitality. The coffee and refreshments served each Sunday is an important arm of our deacon ministry. When we have church luncheons, we're fed so well, it's because a deacon-led team plans and pulls it together. Our deacons help coordinate facility maintenance, when a toilet breaks or the roof leaks, the deacons are Johnny on the spot. When, a tree, when trees need trimming or grass needs mowing or windows need washing, deacons lead the charge. Just yesterday, it was the deacons who led the spring cleanup. <laughs> I, I find this really funny. Did you know that we have a small team of deacon-led servants who are keeping our property skunk-free. <laughs> I kid you not. We have skunk issues here at the church. We have skunk issues at this location. And we have a deacon-led team of servants who are waging war with these skunks. <laughs> and they're winning. We are winning. And it's probably never, because they're on it, most of you probably never even knew about it. Just a few examples of what deacons do. These, these duties, their duties are flexible within each church, depending on the particular needs of the church. So thankful for these servants, those who serve with them. We want to equip them. 
We want to encourage them to serve in new and better ways by God's grace. We want to set them loose. I love the way that one man put it. He said that deacons are idea generators. They're always thinking of new ways to meet new, to, to meet new needs. Always anticipating future needs before they become problems. Always working within the church, serving the church. To promote health and unity in the church. Health. Unity. Isn't that what happened here in Acts 6? Verse 5 says, And what they, the apostles, and what they said pleased the whole congregation. I want you to hear that. And what they said pleased the whole congregation. In other words, the establishment of a deacon ministry brought joy and unity in the church. These seven men, through their service, by the very nature of their work, served in this context, didn't they? They served as complaint diffusers. They served as division healers. These were men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. The wrong men could worsen the problem. The wrong men could sow suspicion and mistrust and turmoil. The wrong men could deepen the divide between Hellenists and Hebrews. The wrong men could have faulted the apostles for not getting involved and thrown them under the bus. But these men were a unifying force in the church. They were the glue that held it all together. And I want you to notice the effect. Verse 7. The word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. So this joyful unity, right? Very real problem, very real threat. Division is affecting the church. The apostles appoint men to serve as deacons, the deacons diffuse the complaints, heal the division, brings this joyful unity, and the church moves forward in fruitful ministry. And the deacons were at the heart of it. The deacons were at the heart of it. So when I say earlier that in many ways the deacons are the lifeblood of the church, I'm not exaggerating. The deacons were at the heart of it. Now, these men in this passage aren't specifically called deacons. I recognize that. But Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, he uses deacon language to describe what they do. So in verse 1, where it says distribution, that's the word diakonia. Verse 2, where it says serve, it's the word diakoneo. So this passage, it seems very clear that it presents a pattern of deacon ministry in the church of Jerusalem, and that pattern was copied by other churches as the Christian faith expanded and branched out, and eventually those who served in this office were called deacons. So by the time Paul writes to Timothy, 
who was pastoring the church at Ephesus, which is somewhere around 30 years later, the offices of elder and deacon were common. And so if we turn to 1 Timothy, this is our halftime, if we need to stretch or drink some water, now is the time. If you need to stand, thank you. Yeah, feel free. If you need to stand, that's right. Good. Okay. So the offices of elder and deacon were common. So we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Paul, he's teaching young Timothy, who's pastoring this church at Ephesus. And that church, by the way, we won't go all into it this morning, but that church was also facing some very real threats. Namely, false teaching, which was bringing division, confusion. And so Paul, he's listing character qualities, first describing the character of the elder or overseer in verses 1 through 7, and then that of the deacon in verses 8 through 13. It's not an exhaustive list in that these aren't the only qualities that matter, but it is an essential list in that these qualities are a must. These qualities must be in place. And I should also note, I think this is important, I should also note that these characteristics shouldn't surprise any of us. In other words, these are basic, fundamental traits that should characterize all Christian believers. Not just the deacons. However, those who serve as deacons should exemplify these things. And so we're moving now from the deacon's duty to the deacon's disposition. Paul lists 10 qualifications for deacons in verses 8 through 12. First, they're to be dignified. Dignified meaning noble or respectable or serious even. Other translations will use the word serious. They are people worthy of respect, or they are to be people worthy of respect, as, as it's translated in the NIV. The apostles appointed men of good repute, remember, meaning they were well respected in the congregation. Dignity elicits trust. We wouldn't want, we wouldn't want our heart surgeon to be flippant, flippant or nonchalant. We wouldn't want our 747 pilot to be goofing off in the cockpit. We don't want our governmental leaders to be too casual for the offices they hold. We want people of dignity who grasp the significance of their, ca- of their task. And so in the same way, deacons must be dignified. And not double-tongued. Deacons don't say one thing but mean another. Or say one thing to one person, then something different to someone else. Deacons mustn't be devious in speech or two-faced. People who are two-faced lack sincerity and credibility. They can't be trusted. 
deacons must not be double-tongued or, or they, they, they must not be addicted to much wine. It's not that deacons cannot have wine, not at all, but that they display self-control. They are under control. They aren't controlled by their cravings. You know, you know, alcohol is a depressant. It blunts and it blurs our judgment. And when it's taken in excess, it can cause us to do or say things that we otherwise wouldn't do or say. So just recently, I'm driving down the freeway and I see a billboard that says buzzed driving is drunk driving. Sends an important message. Serves as an important reminder. And I wonder if we to exercise such care in our cars, shouldn't we exercise even more care in our churches? And so it's no surprise that deacons, those who are appointed and entrusted to lead and serve and set the example, help set the example and care for the congregation, it's no surprise that they would use great caution and care when it comes to alcohol. They're, to be, they're, they're, they're not to be greedy for dishonest gain. This is number four. Two things are in play here. Contentment and integrity. Deacons are to be content. Not greedy. They're to be people of integrity. Not dishonest. It's especially important in that deacons often handle the money and financial matters of the church. And so deacons must be good stewards of what belongs to God and not greedy for personal gain or dishonest gain. Number five, sound in faith in life. It says in verse nine, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The phrase, the mystery of the faith, simply refers, it's, it's kind of Pauline language that refers to the gospel and speaks of that which was which was veiled in the Old Testament and unveiled in the New, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is referring to the wondrous, awesome, mind-blowing, mysterious ways by which God saves sinners from eternal death to new and eternal life in and through Christ. Deacons are to be gospel people. They are to have a firm grasp on the gospel and hold firm to the gospel with a clear conscience, it says, meaning that there isn't a contradiction between what they believe and how they behave. Their conscience is clear. And number six, they're to be tested. Let them be tested first. We, we can't be hasty, Paul says. We can't be hasty in appointing people to this important role. Uh, Timothy, assess them first. Test them. Observe them. Talk with them. Understand them. Know them. 
They should be examined and tested. It's a test of character. And then that should lead to this sense of being blameless. Number seven, let them be tested first and then let them serve if they prove themselves blameless, which means above board or above reproach. It's not sinless perfection. It's not that these men are, 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 are perfect men. It's not that at all. It's that they are above board. They're above reproach. There shouldn't be any dirt that compromises their character. There should be no surprise skeletons in their closet. Number eight. Paul begins to address the deacon's family in verse 11. And so he's talking about a godly wife. So verses 8 and 10, or 8 through 10, are just general characteristics, while verses 11 through 12 are more specific to the family environment. A deacon's wife, if he has one, also must be dignified. Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. These are similar qualities listed for the deacons themselves because deacons are in leading roles and sometimes intimately involved in people's lives. They sometimes are privy to sensitive information. And so even their wives must be trustworthy. They must be temperate and self-controlled. They mustn't be loose talkers, but respectable. They too are to be marked by this godly character. Deacons are to be the husband of one wife, number nine. Like the elder, the deacon must be a one-woman man. It's not that he must be married. It's not what Paul is saying. But if he is married, he is unswervingly devoted to his wife. He is hers, and hers alone. There, there is no other woman in his life with whom he connects on an intimate level, physically, certainly, but not even emotionally. He's just unswervingly devoted to his wife if he's married. And then finally, number 10, he, he manages his children and his home well. When assessing the deacon, Paul says in verse 12 that we should assess his home and his care for his children. How is his relationship with his kids if he has any? Again, this isn't a requirement that deacons must have children. But if he does, how is his relationship with them? Is he fulfilling his role as head of the home? Biblically speaking, is he serving his family, loving and leading his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Is his home a place where God is honored? Simply put, a deacon is to be the spiritual leader of his family. Ten things. Dignified. Not double-tongued. Not addicted to wine or greedy for dishonest gain. Sound in faith and life, tested, blameless. 
at home, his wife is similarly dignified. He's the husband of just one wife. And he cares for his children well. These are the qualities to look for. When we come to this question, I just love how God surprises us even when we don't want to be surprised. Come to this question. Can women be deacons? It's an important question. This passage mentions the deacon's wife But does it say anything about women serving as deacons or in the office of deacons? That's important, in the office of deacon. The word translated wives in verse 11 in the ESV, it's true, it can mean either woman, just in general, it can mean woman, general, generally speaking, or specific, it can mean wife. And the way we know which it means is by the surrounding context. Right? So when we're interpreting Scripture, context is key. So the question here in 1 Timothy 3 is is whether Paul is speaking about women here generally and presumably women deacons or is he speaking specifically about wives, about deacons' wives? And I think it's wives. I think the ESV is right because the passage is putting forth qualifications for deacons, not distinguishing between deacons. In other words, it would be odd, I think, for Paul to describe deacons in verses 8, 9, and 10, then randomly insert a comment about deaconesses as if they're under a different set of qualifications in verse 11, and then come back to talk about deacons in verses 12 and 13. I think it makes much more sense contextually to assume that Paul is talking about male deacons throughout, and in the process of talking about male deacons, he comments about their wives. Furthermore, if Paul wanted to specifically address the deaconess, he could have used the word diakonos instead of the word for wives or women. He could have easily done that, which in fact he did in verses 8 and verse 12 and again in verse 13. He could have eliminated all doubt simply by using the, the Greek word for deacon, diakonos or diakoneo. He could have used that word instead of the general word for women or wives, but he doesn't. So, Got some very interesting faces looking at me. 
Can women be deacons? <sighs> Maybe. Maybe. But I'm not sure. And I know that kind of places us in a little bit of an awkward situation. Because we've been wonderfully served by women in that office. But that's why I'm not comfortable, not yet, in pushing forward today with our plans to appoint or commission deacons. I do want to say, I want to just quickly kind of present both sides in a very nutshell way. It's clear, we've seen it this morning, it's clear that Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3 speak about male deacons. And because these are the two passages in Scripture that detail the office of deacon, that's important, not, not deacon-type service, but these are the two passages in Scripture that detail the office of deacon, the only two passages It seems that God, or it seems reasonable to assume male headship. It seems that God has entrusted this responsibility to certain men in the church. Certainly women can serve with them, but it seems that God wants men to carry this mantle. However, and here's where it gets tricky. There is one verse. Romans 16, verse 1, where Paul commends Phoebe as a servant of the church. And he uses the word diakonos for servant. So on the one hand, Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3 stress male deacons, but Romans 16 verse 1 connects Phoebe, a woman, obviously, to the word deacon, albeit in a very general way. So what am I saying? I am not saying, I am not saying that women absolutely not, how do I say, I am not saying that women absolutely cannot be deacons. I have not yet come to that conclusion, and I may not come to that conclusion. I am not saying that those women who have served this church as deacons or who are serving now are in any way out of line. They are not. And I am certainly not saying that women are incapable of serving in this way. 
that's obviously not true. Nor am I saying, just want to be transparent, nor am I saying that the pattern that was established here, that has been established here at East Parkway, the pattern of appointing women deacons, the pattern that was set in place before I became pastor, I am not saying that that is necessarily wrong. What I am saying is that I have further questions. And I want more answers before rushing to a conclusion. And I think, I believe, that we'll be blessed because of it. So tempted this week, you need to know this, so tempted this week to push ahead, to forge ahead with our plans, even though I didn't have peace in doing so. Oh my goodness, so tempted. So much inner angst as I wrestled with these passages and with God. Sometimes, don't, isn't it true, sometimes we just want the Bible to say what we want it to say. We just want the Bible to say what we want it to say in the way we want it to say it. Sometimes we think it's easier, even better, if God's word would just align to our will instead of the other way around. And so sometimes in those moments, what happens, we are tempted to massage the scriptures to our liking. You ever been there? You're tempted to massage the scripture to your liking. That's where I was this week. God, this is going to be really awkward. God, I'm not sure. And I know I'm not sure. But this is going to be really awkward. God, if I just move ahead, no one will know what was going on in my heart. So on Thursday night, as I'm driving home from the church, I had this check in my spirit. And I sensed the Spirit Himself telling me just to pause and trust Him. Telling to put my plans aside and trust Him. Telling me to explore this question of women deacons a little bit more and trust Him. And in the car ride home, I came to a place of peace with that decision. And I think God's going to honor it. That's why we're not appointing or dedicating our deacons today. I need to come to this place of resolution. Because I want to stand before you and before God with integrity. And so the elders and I are going to talk. I've already reached out to them. The deacons and I are going to talk. I've already connected with them. The women and I are going to talk. I've already begun that conversation. And please hear this. Maybe nothing will change with regard to our practice here in our deacon ministry. Or maybe something will. I don't yet know. But I believe God's going to honor it in the long run. 
And I just pray for your peace and, or, or for your uh, patience. Pray for your patience. And I pray for your, your prayers that God would just give us wisdom. Does that answer help at all? And I hope this is at least some comfort to you. I want to close by just talking about the deacon's reward in verse 13. The deacon's reward. Paul's describing the the qualifications, and then he comes to verse 13, and he says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Deacons who serve well are well rewarded. We shouldn't shy away from that. Scripture is clear. Those who serve well are well rewarded. And it's not just those who serve, notice, but who serve well. They take pride in the very best sense of the word, they take pride in their service. They don't want to just get by. They don't want to just show up when it's their turn. They want to serve well. And they're well rewarded both outwardly and inwardly, we're told. So outwardly, it says they gain a good standing. They're just well-respected people. This isn't to stroke their ego or to puff them up. It's, they're not serving to be noticed, but their service is noticed. And the congregation sees and appreciates what they do, and God sees, and He approves as well. And then they're, then they're rewarded inwardly. They grow strong in their faith. Their service is Christ-like, and it honors Christ, and they become more confident in Christ. And so their service brings, brings them great satisfaction because their relationship with Jesus is deepening. That's a reward, Those who serve well are well-respected and well-rooted in the faith. This is their reward by God's grace. And so this morning, we've considered the duty and disposition of the deacon. As I said at the start, we want to develop this ministry. We want to affirm our deacons. We want to encourage new ones to serve with them. For God strengthens the church. God strengthens our church through the care and character of our deacons. We need them. We need them. We wouldn't be here without them. Esteem them. Thank them. Encourage them. Pray for them. Praise God for them. Amen. Amen. Father, you've been very good to us this morning. That's no surprise. You are so good to us all the time. 
Lord, I thank you for the church here at East Parkway. I thank you for these people. I thank you for the great history we have and share and the great future you have for us. Father, would you continue to give us great wisdom and direction with regard to our deacons specifically? Thank you for these who serve us so well week by week by week by week hidden, behind the scenes, rarely noticed, but oh my goodness, without them, we would not be. And so we thank you for them, we praise you for them, we, we're so, uh, we're just so thankful, Lord, that in your providence and in your omniscience, you, you knew to, to set this office aside for the good of your church. Thank you for the way in which you strengthen your church through the deacon's care and through the character of those who serve as deacons. Bless them, even now, encourage them. And then, Lord, I suspect there are some among us this morning who, whom you are calling, stirring their hearts to serve in this office. And I pray that you would confirm that Confirm your call in their lives that we might continue to strengthen and bolster and develop our deacon ministry for the good of your church, for the glory of your name, that there would be this joyful unity and fruitful ministry that marked that church in Jerusalem. Do that among us, we pray, for your name's sake. Amen.